Welcome to Zealots at the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, friends, so make sure you subscribe wherever you listen, and please leave us a review. We love five stars. Um, and uh, feel free to join the conversation. You can ask us questions by using the hashtag on Twitter, zealots, hashtag zealotspod, or feel free to email us. Um, our email address is zealots at comment.org, and you can expect a friendly uh, exchange with us. My name is Matthew Kamink. And uh, Shadi and I are good friends. Uh, that said, perhaps we shouldn't be. I'm a Christian. Shadi's a Muslim. I'm a conservative. Shadi's a quasi-liberal. Uh, I'm white. He's brown. I study theology. He studies political science and theory. Um, I'm from the rural Northwest, and he is from the elite urban bastions of liberalism in the Northeast. Um, and so for many reasons, Shadi and I shouldn't be friends. Um, our identity markers sort of uh, label us as people who might even be enemies, uh, but we are. And as we said, this is a place for us to work out and explore those differences. And uh, Shadi, today we get to explore the differences around uh, faith and politics with the caliphate. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what we're talking about and our guest? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Matt. So I'm really excited about this episode. We have a treat for you all. We have a special guest, Awaymer Anjum. He is the Imam Khattab Endowed Chair of Islamic Studies at the Department of Philosophy at the University of Toledo. He's also the founder of the Omatics Institute, which is sort of like a Muslim research collective. Um, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Awaymer I, I think, is one of the boldest and most original Islamic thinkers writing today. And some of his arguments are quite provocative, and that's why we're really looking forward to the discussion with him. He wrote an incredible article. It's a tour de force of an essay uh, three years ago. It has the title, Who Wants the Caliphate? Question mark. And I suppose one answer to the question is that Oweimer wants a caliphate. And so part of this essay is actually trying to make the case for some version of the caliphate. And that's why we want to talk to Oweimer today. And I'm sure there'll be a number of other issues that we, we get to the nation state, democracy, liberalism, you name it. And I think this is actually one of the first times that um Oweimer will be talking to a largely Christian audience, um, certainly publicly, and also to a Christian theologian, my friend here, Matthew. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we'll find out. And maybe just by way of starting the conversation and then turning it to you, Oweimer, um, you know, when it comes to the caliphate, I think most Americans associate that with fanaticism, extremism. Um, the caliphate just, it, it has that power to it, which I think is unfortunate because if we look historically, 
the greatest moments of Islamic civilization were precisely those periods when there was a caliphate. And whether we're talking about philosophical, scientific, intellectual vitality and progress and pluralism, that was happening under the historic caliphates. And I think that maybe that's one place to start is to give people maybe a sense of what you mean when you use this particular word. And I'll just say from my own standpoint, when I think about the historic caliphate, I don't think about clerical despotism. I don't think about authoritarianism. Actually, in the medieval period under the Abbasid Caliphate and other caliphates, we actually see a balance of powers. We see checks on the power of the caliph. The caliph oftentimes wasn't even that powerful, and most of his power came from the symbolic meaning of his post. Um, but maybe that's a good place to start, and then we can get into the heart of what what you might want to say about why you think it's worth it's worth it for us as moderns to actually draw inspiration from the past caliphates as we look to the future. Oamer, over to you. Yeah, and, and, Matt, and you just, just to, yeah, just to add in there, I mean, for for those in the Christian audience who maybe have no idea what a caliphate is. Or maybe they, they've imagined it as some sort of totalitarian Islamic regime. Uh, you know, just for beginners, um, how should we understand this? Um, this okay. thing called the caliphate. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, thank you very much, Shadi and Matt, for having me for this conversation. It is a real treat. I've been thinking about, um, about this since uh, you, you guys reached out to me. And I've enjoyed your other conversations as well. I know Shadi a little bit more. In fact, uh, Shadi may not remember, but it was uh, almost a decade and a half ago that we first met perhaps in Madison, Wisconsin, where he was attending a conference, I think, on South Asia. And we had a very interesting conversation that I still remember. Uh, the caliphate, um, I totally understand that people have a lot of apprehensions about it, um, but to some degree what the article intended to do was precisely precisely to create this uh this uh provocation um because uh as i will explain the idea of the caliphate um when informed muslims think about it uh, it's precisely as uh, shadi hinted at that it is thought of as an era of uh, relative pluralism, tolerance, um, and a continuity to the early days of Islam, um, a way of governance that is not um, totalitarian, um, it, you know, or, or, or absolutist, as I will explain. Uh, it is emphatically not absolutist um, in any of its various eras. I will divide up the caliphate historically into uh, at least four different uh, eras, four different types of, if you will, relationships between uh, power and religion. Um, and in none of those manifestations was the caliphate absolutist. In many ways, the modern nation state is far more absolutist uh, than, than the pre-modern caliphate. But let me say something about the very idea, the word caliphate. The word caliph means merely a successor. 
uh, a deputy and the uh, term was used for the first uh, successor to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, whose name was Abu Bakr, who uh, the first thing that he said on his uh, pulpit, a, an iconic speech in Islamic history, he said two things. One, I'm not perfect. If I'm wrong, correct me. And if I'm right, follow me. And the second thing he said, the job, of, uh, the task I have for myself is to take from the strong the rights of the weak. Um, and these ideas effectively sum up what the caliph does. He is not infallible, unlike the Prophet Muhammad, who was infallible, at least uh, insofar as he spoke on behalf of God. And um, yet at the same time, he leads the community of the Prophet Muhammad. The community is not defined by a territory, like we think of the modern nation state, which is defined by a territory. And then... The community is forged, if you will, based on the elements that are available through various mechanisms of imagination, propaganda, um, and what have you. The caliphate is a kind of political uh, uh, entity where it is the community that comes first and the territoriality is secondary. Now, historically, um, the caliph uh, was sometimes appointed, elected, designated, but the theory of early, especially in early days of Islam, was that the caliph is elected, chosen by the Muslims uh, at large, by the Muslim community. Right? So that model, especially is a very important model, uh, in Muslim imagination, the Sunnis and the Shia, the two sort of denominations of Islam, will think of those uh, early days differently, but they agree that those early days are uh, gold, the, the golden, if you will, religiously speaking, the golden era, the golden age, uh, because they're normative, because ideals of justice and piety are upheld um, by the first four caliphs for the Sunnis and by uh, the last of those caliphs, Ali ibn Abi Talib, uh, for the Shia. And therefore, this early model, the first caliphate, which is called the rightly guided caliphate, is which lasted only 30 years, but it has this normative force, which then applies uh, as a standard uh, to the rest of this history in which uh, all, if you will, all other rulers are judged against it and found wanting. But that ideal is seen as important. That very idea of having ideals that are perhaps sometimes impossible to reach is central to Islamic imagination, in, whether it's ethics or piety or whatnot. Um, so... In short, the caliphate is um, Muslim government in which Muslims, to which Muslims belong and non-Muslims have always had from the very beginning uh, a well-defined role in the caliphate as protected minorities, the Dhimmis, and um, 
the historical experience of the caliphate has been quite significant uh, and, and quite different from what, what, what one imagines when one thinks of Christian Europe, Christendom, in which there were no significant non-Christian communities or non-significant non-Christian communities that were recognized until, of course, the modern period. In the caliphate, there are always uh, significant non-Muslim minorities, particularly Christians, but also Jews and Zoroastrians and, uh, and, and others. So the caliphate was by definition a uh, plural existence where the relationship to non-Muslims was, um, you know, was seen as part of one's faith to, to be good to them. It was not liberal democracy. It is not equality. But the legal status uh, was certainly unquestionable. So, so could I ask Oimer on sure. that? As you correctly note, we're not talking about equality between citizens in the full modern sense. We are talking about communities that are protected. They have rights of worship and, and, and freedom to exercise their faith on the local level. But there are built-in limitations. And I think that critics of of the kind of uh, let's return to the caliphate argument would say that it was great for the time compared to Christendom. There were consider relatively speaking, there were greater rights for Jews and Christians. But if we're comparing the historic caliphate to liberal democracy today, there is no real comparison because obviously in the historic caliphate, a Christian or Jewish p person couldn't aspire to be the head of state. Almost by you know by definition, a non-Muslim couldn't be caliph or hold certain senior positions in government because this was ultimately a state and an empire infused by Islamic ideals. And it's hard for non-Muslims to be able to play that role of stewardship over the Muslim community. So what would you say to that? That, yeah, it was great for its time, but this idea of dhimmis and protected minorities is still keeping non-Muslim minorities on a lower status. Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, it goes without saying that what the modern um, secular forms of government produce um, is they, they create certain advantage, which is that faith, moral commitments, um, God, are kept out of the public sphere uh, in order to achieve a, a certain kind of equality. Now, that equality, we all know, uh, is never fully achieved, right? So liberal democracy is also an asymptotic kind of ideal uh, where um, democracy has produced all kinds of inequalities and liberalism sort of tries to constrain democracy in some ways so it's a it's a it's a it's a project that uh, that goes for certain kinds of ideals and doesn't look at other kinds of ideals. Um, the kind of ideals that are held in the pre-modern world and in communities of faith in general, even today, are not seen as informing liberal democracy. Um, so I think that if one is to uh, think of 
some other way of constructing a public sphere in which the public square is not naked, in which it is possible to create a kind of a moral uh, model uh, for uh, constraining forces of politics, capitalism, um, and other things, other great forces, uh, I think, which are real, the true, um, the true threats to humanity, uh, if I may exaggerate or perhaps use hyperbole, hyperbole a little bit. Many people would think that, of course, it's commonsensical. We're, you know, a planet is, uh, is, is almost certainly going to uh, be transformed with this uh, the kind of regime that liberal secularism has produced in such a way that it may not uh, uh, continue. Uh, you know, its health is, and, uh, is seriously questioned. So we certainly have to think about other models, right? Uh, and if one diagnoses the problem of liberal secular democracy as the absence of uh, moral, public moral um, example, public moral norms, then I would say Islam is an Islamic caliphate is the biggest competitor uh, as some uh, as a model that still has um, uh, you know large measures of tolerance and guarantee of certain communal rights, certain personal rights. Um, and for Muslims who think that you know who haven't frankly gained much from liberal democracy, this is particularly attractive. But the claim I am uh, willing to make that it is for even the rest of the world and for uh, Christian friends, certainly something uh, where dialogue and learning is possible. Quick question for you uh, on that point. So I, I have a number of Christian friends who speak very positively of secular modernity. You know, they talk about technology and medicine and healthcare and education and all these aspects of secular modernity that seem to make our lives a lot better in a, in a variety of sort of measurable ways. Uh, but then I have other Christians who are very critical of secular modernity, and they talk about, you know, the rise of anxiety and depression and the breakdown of the family and um, the, the rise of uh, selfishness and individualism and loneliness. And I'm wondering, um, from your Islamic perspective, as you... Um, you clearly have some questions about secular modernity and whether or not it's it's good for the for human beings. Could you just just for a moment share with us sort of your your primary Islamic concerns about sec secular modernity as essentially what is it doing to human beings? Um, it seems to me you you think it's rather unsustainable to live this way. So could you kind of talk that? Talk us through that um, as a Muslim, how, how, you, how you read that. Right. So I think that there are, let me categorize my concerns, at, at, least in, you know, at least in two different categories. One are immediate political concerns that come out of uh, Muslim experience of colonialism, post-colonialism, a world that is incredibly unequal, a world that seems bent on uh, destroying Muslim flourishing and Islamic flourishing. Uh, where when you think of Islam, you think of uh, innocent children being washed uh, to, in the Mediterranean because, as, as refugees. Europe is building higher walls. There are uh, failed states one after another. All of them 
uh, or nearly all of them were secular experiments that have not brought uh, the kind of flourishing or prosperity, at least even material prosperity, that Christian, perhaps Christian majority countries or formerly Christian majority countries have seen. So there is that internal history, which is why I don't have to make that argument very hard speaking to Muslims at all. Uh, but then the concerns that I have as a Muslim um, in the West, as a Muslim uh, and Western academic and uh, somebody who is very much uh, concerned with and interested in uh, thinking about the world in conversation with secular scholars, scientists, historians, uh, where I share their concerns with ecological survival of the planet and the kind of uh, inequalities that, um, that have both inequalities at the level uh, that we see in the economic sense, but cultural inequality, where there is hegemony of one culture that has eliminated, eaten up the rest of the world. Um, and so let me speak from that perspective primarily for in answer to this question, because I think that that's the kind of question, that's the angle that you're coming from. Um, I don't see secular modernity as a kind of singular evil that many uh, perhaps more traditionalist Muslims tend to see. Uh, not that I, I, I do not see myself as being super traditionalist or non-traditionalist. I see that uh, merely as a question, it's a balance. I think that the many aspects of modernity uh, are indeed continuation of human history. And as Muslims, we do not condemn human history. We do not condemn uh, the various opportunities God provides uh, humanity. Um, there are different kinds of tests. But at the same time, to not recognize the hegemony of secularism and the disappearance of God, and with that, some really deep um, transformations, uh, I think that also uh, would uh, not do justice to how I think any faithful person um, uh, would evaluate modernity. So I think those are real serious concerns. But at the same time, I don't use those concerns to say, hey, there is nothing in modernity. Medicine isn't important, that we aren't living better and longer lives, at least the, the top 5 10% of people, um, that, um, you know, we haven't, overcome many of uh, not only material problems of the pre-modern age, but also epistemic problems of biases and ignorance that modern bodies of knowledge have, in fact, uh, um, um, you know, uh, have made available. I just don't attribute them particularly as products of modernity. I see them as human progress, uh, progress understood in the in the small p sense as you know a much more complicated idea, not the theological idea of of, of progress that that is right. often under right. underwrites these things. That's that's really helpful. I I'm sorry about that, Shadi. I I took us off course here. I want to bring us back to the caliphate here because I've got a couple more questions for you on this. Um, so within the Western political imagination, we hear any discussion of an Islamic form of government. 
and our minds immediately go to the term theocracy. Um, and we use that sort of Western label of theocracy for, I think, essentially what you're talking about in this in this article about the revival of a caliphate. Um, and um, but you say very clearly, um, the caliphate is not a theocracy, and that theocracy is not uh, permissible for Sunni Islam. So I'm wondering if you could talk us through um, the, yeah, how is it not a theocracy? Well, it all depends on how we define theocracy, right? But it, it is not theocracy if by theocracy is meant um, a, a direct government by people who are speaking, who have connection to God, and, you know, they're speaking on, on, on behalf of God, and their public policies, their political choices um, are justified in the name of God alone. But rather... Um, the way Islamic uh, government worked in, in history, most Western scholars, uh, by the way, or categorize Islamic uh, uh, government historically as non-theocratic, uh, with few exceptions. Uh, exceptions in few, uh, you know, th there are some regimes which come close to being theocracies, relatively limited, but Sunni caliphates were not theocratic they were sometimes they're thought of as more nomocratic, meaning that it was a rule of law and the law was Sharia, right? Law of Islamic law. But that Islamic law is articulated not by a single voice that's speaking for God, but by jurists who are uh, based in communities. Um, and the Islamic law or Sharia is very much community oriented and almost a bottom up law uh, in a way that really constrains the um, powers of a uh, of centralized uh, autocratic government. Um, so. This also speaks to the question or to 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 a point that Shadi raised earlier, which is that the caliph. Um, was not, you know, the powers of the caliph are not absolute because the caliph almost is a shepherd of the community in the very general sense, but not the repository of religious truth. Religious truth uh, comes from scripture and scripture is available to all the believers and is articulated by the ulama who are, you know, they, there is no single institution of hierarchy that can authorize or control the ulama um, as modern modern governments tend to yeah. you know they yeah, can mon I, monopolize that right and that's what i think was really interesting about your piece was how um i think for many western christians when we think about islamic politics we think about we use we use images of sort of authoritarian control but throughout your piece you're talking about uh, checks and balances and federalism and pushing power down and holding leaders to account. And um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, go ahead. And you, and, and you even uh, quoted uh, the conservative author and pundit George Will as an inspiration for your ideas around reviving the caliphate. We'll get to that where George Will might fit into that. Right. <laughs> And it will include, of course, uh, a link to the whole essay um, in the show notes for those of you who want to leave through it. 
Now, okay, I'll put my cards on the table a little bit. Um, I have my criticisms of the nation state. And I think one thing your essay does, it's very, I think, persuasive and powerful is you, you remind modern audiences that the nation state isn't always great. And particularly in the Middle East, the nation state has been, I would say, disastrous because it has centralized power, because it has made dictatorship more likely. And that's one of the reasons that after the fall of the last caliphate in 1924, we don't see a flourishing of pluralism and democracy and liberalism. We see a consolidation of authoritarian regimes throughout. So this idea that, you know, people might think intuitively, get rid of the old caliphate, people can make progress. What we've seen in the Middle East is almost the reverse. And there's a number of reasons why that's the case. We don't have to get into all of it right now. But I think it's worth it's it's really worth it for um, for people who care who care about the Middle East, but also about religion more broadly to just be aware of how the nation state can distort religion because a nation state sees itself as absolute. It is the sovereign. So it also inevitably wants to control religion and religious production and religious knowledge, because if you leave that open, then people can challenge your rule. So you want to make sure that it's under control. And that's one reason that there are ministries of religious affairs, Islamic affairs, throughout the Middle East, even under ostensibly secular governments. Okay, but then where I am probably a little bit more critical is seeing the caliphate as a viable alternative, as a preferred alternative. And I think there's a couple complications that really stand out to me. One of them is in Muslim-majority countries in the Middle East, we no longer just have people who believe in Islamic rule. There are now secularists and liberals and leftists and socialists. There might not be a whole lot of them. Still, the majority of these populations tend to be religiously conservative. But we're talking about, especially among elites, there's a lot of Egyptians, Tunisians, Jordanians, who any thought of a caliphate would be anathema to them because they don't want to live under any kind of religious rule, even if it's non-theocratic. But still, a caliphate is going to have a conception of the good life. It still is going to promote a particular understanding of Islam. And I think that, to me, is one of the big obstacles. And to say nothing of uh, Christian minorities in some of these countries, and I think for Christian listeners in America, they might wonder, like, for example, the Copts in Egypt, presumably they wouldn't be thrilled if Egypt became part of a confederal, a confederated regional structure and that the head of the head of state ultimately is um, a Muslim and only a Muslim. Right. So I'm just curious, how would you think through some of those uh, concerns? Um, I would say that the nation state, just to underscore your point, is not merely, uh, it, it not merely does it tend to monopolize religious authority, uh, but I belong to that school of, of scholars who argue um, that the nation state must necessarily, by definition, do so. And therefore, for those concerned with 
the flourishing of Islam as an ethical and religious uh, entity must also uh, be concerned uh, with a or concerned with the kinds of um, they must also be concerned with a post-nation state future uh, and, and they must think of uh, alternatives and the nation state also is something that I don't see as just a thing that is but rather it's a sort of a, it's a, it's a many things coming together that are constantly in transition so I don't call for brick by brick destruction of the nation state but simply uh, its transition which uh, I as I point out in uh, the article uh, that Europe, the birthplace of the nation state uh, in the era right of the, of the of globalization, realizes that nation state must go in some of in in some important ways. European Union is a way to say that we must roll back the nation state. So the idea that there can be or there needs to be some kind of federation uh, is not really that new or interesting i although i might i would love to take that kind that credit but in fact um i don't think that for people who are in the field it really isn't that that new of an idea either a radical critique of the nation state which is very common i was almost say that's the standard narrative or the idea that we could move toward uh, some kind of regional reintegration or a civilizational state as you know, uh, India or China are being called today. Um, but going back to your question that, look, we still have uh, religious authority. The public sphere uh, is wearing a garb and a turban. What do we do about that? Uh, and I think that um, that is true, but nowhere and in no situation can we imagine a public life that is not wearing a garb one way or the other, right? No clothes are still clothes, right? When you're naked, you're still making a statement. So secularism is not empty. Secularism is a kind of expression. And there are increasing, you know, piling up of studies from anthropology, political science, political theory that are arguing precisely that the nation state has never been neutral. Uh, sorry, secular nation state or secularism has never been neutral. Uh, so in that sense, uh, often this question about concern that, let's say, uh, Christians uh, in the North might have, um, looking from the distance, those are Chris concerns of Christians in the North that I want to be part of the dialogue with, but I just don't think that their concerns are the priority for people living elsewhere. Now, thinking about Christians in the Muslim world, um, well, those are, those are different concerns. Often Christians in the West or the North have very little idea and share very little with Christians in the South or the East. Uh, so that's a complicated conversation, uh, which, which, which we can go in that direction. In Egypt, I'm sure you're familiar that there are Christians who would rather be treated uh, through the Pact of Omar or some version of, you know, like the Islamic deal, rather than uh, be integrated into the nation state. And this were these were recent controversies where 
the Christian community, for example, still prefers to be governed by particular Christian norms that are guaranteed by the remnant Islamic side of the Egyptian state, whereas more secular uh, younger Christians might want to give that up. But there are, in fact, fears that giving up those special protections for Christians that are provided by the Sharia model will, in fact, lead to elimination or pulverization uh, or disappearance of the Christian community as they all become equally secular and perhaps uh, disintegrated. That, uh, you know, you have a Christian community that has um, survived for 14 centuries uh, under Islamic rule. Uh, many Christians might think that that's a perfectly good way. If the purpose, if the kingdom is kingdom of heaven, you don't have a particular political model, why not live under um, a thriving Muslim uh, government that allows us to um, to flourish as Christians, right? So the question would only be, can we flourish as Christians? And I think that's that's that would be a different conversation. Uh, whereas often Western Christians' concerns, which is which is how I understood uh, Matt starting, those those concerns are often of a very different nature because if those Christians were to talk to Egyptian Christians, they probably would have very little uh, in, in common in, in terms of concerns. So if I could flip the conversation completely on the other side, uh, as we've talked about the, the, the status of Christians in a Muslim country, um, here in the United States, whether you call it a Christian country or a secular country, you have a, a substantial Muslim minority here. And one of the things you've talked about is the need for um, uh, a level of authority or governance to, to be a legitimate sort of Muslim community. And um, Shadi has said multiple times that he really loves America and he, he loves being a, a Muslim in America. Um, but I, I, I imagine, I, I think my question for you is this, um, you know, America's not going to join a caliphate, right, anytime soon. Um, but uh, if if the American government were to make some form of concession to the Muslim community in America to allow for some level of um, increased governance um, for the Muslim community, what what might you want to ask the American government to provide um, to the Muslim community? in America that it is not currently providing um, is in terms of, yeah, governmental structure or power or sovereignty um, for the, the Islamic community here in the United States? Yeah, so I mean, it's, a, it's another great question that I think uh, perhaps speaks to uh, the concern that a lot of Americans in general uh, have, which is, how does the caliphate view the rest of the world? And uh, what does that mean for religion, for Muslim minorities? Now, I'd say that just again, looking historically at what the caliphate has been, it was effectively the civilizational state of Muslims in mostly Muslim majority lands. Um, and go back and just even look at the Ottoman Empire uh, in the last century, um, it was effectively 
not very different from how other uh, empires were operating. Now, I'm not saying going back to the Ottoman Empire because that's the that's the model, but there's certainly a lot to be learned even from the Ottoman model, uh, which I can get to later. But one of the things that was very clear to Muslims historically in Islamic law is there is a different separation uh, between Darul Islam and Dar al uh, Ahad or Dar al Harb or Dar al Kufr. There are uh, abode of Islam and then there is the abode of un Islam, whether it's seen as the abode of war because it was by definition there is no international order, so it's seen as, or uh, the abode of treaty. Um, and that distinction, which is central to Islamic law, although modern reformists are questioning that, or have been questioning that, but I think that that's ill-informed because one of the things that uh, happens as soon as you realize that Islam has an abode, is that there are other places where Islam is a guest. And that's, it's perfectly happy as a guest. Muslims in the West, are not trying to convert, don't need to try to convert Islam and establish a caliphate in Europe or America, especially if there is a caliphate that has formal treaties with other lands. Um, and that's an important thing for Muslims, um, again, who are thinking in terms of Sharia, in terms of the, the historic, historical model that I have in mind, so you wouldn't you would you would not ask the American government for any any kind of structural reform to provide Muslims with you know a, additional freedoms or anything. You would simply say just continue as a guest in America. I would say that Muslims, um, in a certain sense, there are uh, uh, yes, uh, you know of course there are kind of local problems in Europe. For example, Muslims live absolutely miserable. You know they're. Their life is miserable in a number of respects, where in America it is far superior in terms of rights and opportunities. Um, and if the trends are, go more in European direction, uh, then I would have much more immediate concerns. But, um, and, 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 and I think that uh, there may be a number of grievances that Muslims have, but none that require a kind of radical overhaul um, of these relations. Often for most Muslims, the grievances are very similar to the grievances Christians have. In other words, those are grievances about where America is going, but those grievances are not the relationship uh, uh, you know, uh, to, to this kind of power and how much government uh, we can have, but rather, you know, if it's if, if it's moral decline in the American society or great inequality or violence, those are things that require addressing uh, as Americans. And I should also say, as I'm an American Muslim and uh, I'm very happy living in America as an American Muslim, where I have the rights and the freedoms um, to to have these kinds of conversations. Right. I'm not trying to change America according to this imperative. I am trying to change America insofar as any other American is, but um, in the model that I have, this caliphate model that, that I am proposing in that article, Muslims, in fact, can be 
happy within America, even if it, it goes more in a more Christian direction or a more secular direction. It's, it's just not the center of gravity. Uh, wh- you know, it's whatever the majority wants. If it, if it, if it so happens that it moves in a direction, you know, let's say Northern Europe, um, and Muslims have less and less freedoms, then yes, Muslims ought to mobilize in ways that are available to them to make Shadi, Shadi has said that he, so Shadi said that he hopes America becomes a little more Christian. He thinks America would be better if it was a little more Christian. Do you, do you feel similarly yeah, that absolutely. like if there were, it, as absolutely. opposed to secularism? Most, I think most Muslims I talk to uh, would appreciate, even those who are on the left or the right, relatively speaking, um, a kind of compassionate Christianity that sees, uh, well, let's say that's not the kind that people often have fear and it's good reason to fear, but that's reactionary and one that sort of were anti-science or anti-reason or whatnot, but one that sort of, um, you know, if that's what Americans want and it, it allows other people to live um, then, yes, I think that would be a more hospitable place for Muslims. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I could jump in here, a couple cons- couple concerns. So I, I still do consider myself a small L liberal, albeit one who is quite critical of what liberalism has become. And I'm very much a believer of the American model. And I've said, I've said elsewhere that I think... There's a good argument to be made that the best place in the world to be a Muslim today is America. And I can't think of, I mean, I guess you could say Canada if you want to count that as a country. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry. Sorry to the Canadians. I didn't mean that. But yeah, I mean, we got Canada and we got the U.S. Comet Magazine then, is in Canada. Shelley. Yeah, I, I really. <laughs> Our host institution for Zealots at the Gate. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry Comet Canada. Magazine. But um so when you say that secularism can never be value neutral, that is actually a theme that we've explored in previous episodes. Both of us are very much of the view that, you know, what we call liberalism and secularism is full of value propositions, even even if it even if liberals don't act like there are value propositions, they're there. And we have to recognize that. But the U.S. system does allow for, at least relatively speaking, a more neutral space. I mean, everything is relative. Um, you know, there isn't a ministry of Christian affairs. I personally, as a Muslim, have a lot of freedom to pursue whatever understanding of Islam is most appealing to me. That seems like a pretty inspiring model. So the question is, if we like this, why wouldn't we consider something more like the American version of secularism, that a secularism that allows for a public religiosity, or maybe that will change in a few years, but at least up until now, there is a lot of room for uh, for evangelicals, for Muslim conservatives, for Orthodox Jews to reflect their beliefs in the public sphere. Again, it's kind of going downhill, but so I, I just wonder, and then maybe just the other point I'd make is I'd worry that as an American Muslim who is who loves America, I wouldn't want my fellow Americans to see me as having dual loyalties. I mean, one risk is that this caliphate emerges in the Middle East 
And you have a caliph who is speaking on behalf of Muslims throughout the world with this kind of spiritual power. And then people start being people start wondering, wait, is Shadi sympathetic to that or any other American Muslim they know? There's going to be a question of where ultimate loyalty lies. And I know other other critics of your argument, Oemer, have made some version of this argument. You know, I, I know that you've had debates with my friend and sparring partner, Mustafa Akyal, on this. Um, so I'm just curious, how would you respond to some of those concerns that are particularly concerns that would come from American Muslims? Because they're in a pretty good spot right now, relatively speaking. Sure. Well, quick answers, because I'm loving your questions. I'm going to try to make it quick so I, I get more of them. Uh, to your first question, um, I think if you just take your own caveats seriously about America, I think that will be your answer, meaning that this is a moment in history. Yes, Muslims happen to find themselves at the, at the end of the era of globalization, after slavery or whatever, genocides are over, um, and the problems of whatever capitalism are not uh, uh, big and serious enough that the rest of the Muslim world right now is on the receiving end of whatever barrel this is, that there are a thousand military bases in America. Yes, in that system, being uh, American anything is good. And okay, um, I will give you that, but with so many caveats, I could make anything look good. The second question, however, is that I don't care that much about um, this, uh, about anybody's anxiety about dual loyalty. That was, that is the problem. The problem that the nation state says, you have to be loyal first and foremost to me. I say that is what needs to go to hell throughout the world, not just in America. And there, uh, many Christians, uh, Christian theologians would cheer you on. Uh, we, in, we within Christianity have a lot of trouble with um, Christians with divided loyalties between the nation state and their faith. And uh, Right. I, and actually, I've, I'm, I'm familiar with that literature and that find that inspiring. Okay, but oh, wait, Mar, but but you can also see, I, you can see where I'm coming from. I realize that it's not your primary concern, but if you're making your case to fellow Muslims, including presumably American Muslims, it's reasonable for them to be a little bit worried about this. But also there's a number of other, I think, related issues. I mean, a, a caliphate that, I mean, a caliphate does raise questions around, I know it's a, it's an Orientalist trope, but it's a, it's a real one that people have, which is that Islam is a supremacist religion, that it wants to dominate so on and so forth, um, which also raises some geopolitical questions of can we really imagine America as a superpower really being comfortable with the idea of this kind of ultra, this ultra Muslim state that kind of channels power more effectively. And I'm not saying it's good that the U.S. would be uncomfortable with that, but it does raise questions about um domination and competition between different civilizations. I mean, anyway, there's just there's just a number of there's a number of concerning developments that would arise that maybe we haven't fully anticipated. So liberal democracy is pretty colonialist, imperialist, expansionist ideology. I'm not sure if you agree with that, but I see that as sort of a given. 
given, uh, I don't know, given pretty much every fact of the lab of the 20th century uh, and the 21st century. Um, and I think that, so any ideology that is successful, uh, it, it tends to be expansionist in one way or another. I think there are different modes of expansion, but um, you have people, in fact, there is a great article by, um, it was a great article by, um, uh, uh, I believe, Richard Schweder at the University of Chicago, um, who writes about Clifford Gertz, a really, of course, iconic anthropologist, who used to say that I have these two loyalties as an anthropologist and a liberal, that on the one hand, liberalism, you know, I like my rights, I like liberalism, I also see it taking over the world, but at the same time, I study cultures that, are, that liberalism is eliminating or, or placing, uh, and, 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 and so I have, as an anthropologist, I would want some dis difference in the world to continue to exist, but liberalism is really eliminating through, through capitalism, through uh, um, uh, values. Uh, so I, uh, the, the, uh, I would say that you could ask the question about Islamic expansionism in two modes. One, you could say, is this going to be an inveterate and stoppable uh, fighting machine like ISIS? Uh, and if that's the case, I agree. There is some there is reason for everybody else to worry. Um, but just look at history. Islamic expansionism just saw a few waves at the beginning. And then it's really no different from uh, any other empire, Christian or other empires. It's doing pretty much the same thing. The idea of the doctrine of jihad uh, for instance, if you if you if you study the history of uh, of jihad, really until the Crusades, people are not even talking about it, right? There's good scholarship that shows that it sees a review a renewal in in the era of the Crusades, following the Crusades, but that's sort of a dud, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. But uh, until the and then the era, era of colonialism, so there is the lived reality in which uh, Muslims have not been unstoppably expansionist, but um, uh, so, so you could now turn around and say, well, but the very fact that Muslims are supposed to, you know, uh, make dawah, call other people to, to Islam and so on. Um, and again, that's, as a believer, it is my hope and desire that the whole world converts to Islam. As a Christian, yeah. would you not like uh. that? Would you not like that? I love it. No, I, but, well, I, <laughs> Shadi and I have talked about this okay. a lot, right? Because we, we've talked about missions and evangelism a lot. And, um, okay, but actually, wait, Murad, on this point, I just want to say that not all believers agree with your statement. I mean, I, obviously yours might be, you know, a pretty mainstream one. But it's perfectly possible for a Muslim believer to say, well, I don't necessarily want or expect or I'm not hoping for everyone in the world to convert to Islam. I mean, first of all, I think there's something good about pluralism. So, you know, I just, I'm not sure I'd want to live in a world where, where everyone's the same religion. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to get into this right now, but I don't actually want to, I, I really don't really want, want to, to get convert into this. <laughs> Matthew because if he did convert to Islam, it would actually be a big problem for him in the sense that, 
his family. He'd have to leave his position at Fuller Seminary. He'd probably have to divorce his wife. He'd have a major issue with his kids. He'd lose a lot of his friends. I mean, that is a, that is not necessarily something that I'm going to sleep and I'm like, oh, if only Matthew... Like, what? I know that's like a different. I just want to just put that out there and feel free to respond to it. I want to hear the <laughs> response. Uh, yeah, what do you think that? I mean, Shadi doesn't want to convert me to Islam. So, what do you think about that? Because I said to him that I was hurt by that. Because if 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 Islam is good for me, Shadi, why don't you want that for me? So, exactly. would you would you join would it's you join like, us in this fight? <laughs> ab- absolutely, because. I have a number of amazing Christian friends, scholars, amazing scholars of Islam and, or, or of Christianity, and uh, they make the same argument, right? That uh, it's actually, if you do believe Islam is good, why wouldn't you want it for us? Uh, but Islamic law prevents me from coercing people. And Islamic wisdom, which actually you find both uh, in the Quran itself, reflecting that there always be differences. So I'm not saying this is a realistic expectation that I, you know, lose sleep over, but um, it is a desire that one ought to have. That I want that good for everyone. How it's going to work out, I, you know, that's precisely, I guess, the difference between a, a, uh, a, a perhaps a liberal uh, and a non-liberal like myself. There are things I leave to God. Um, so that's, I'm not saying that that's, that's going to be a political fact. I'm saying, but nevertheless, as a desire um, to save people, to guide people to God, that's something that comes with the claim uh, that I have something that is good, in the same way that a liberal Democrat, every liberal Democrat in the world, unstoppably preaches liberal democracy to everybody else who would listen. And and then and then some, so uh, I I don't see that that is that's a question I have to worry about. Okay, I that's love this. yeah. This is, I mean it's really interesting. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I I don't want to get sidetracked with, with okay, this part so of the conversation. Let, let me. <clears throat> yeah. I've got a different like question for you. I've got a dis- different question for you. We'll have you back on to talk about the ethics of evangelism and conversion some other time. Um, Absolutely. Because we do need to continue to talk about this. It is interesting, um, so- though, that you use the word save. That did stand out to me because I, I don't really I – don't, I don't see that word as being organic to the Muslim tradition, this idea of being saved and saving others, which I, I see as more of a, a kind of Christian orientation – but we don't have to. In the so, but Matt, do you want to? I'll ask l- you to translate no. in the chat for me then. Um, okay, <laughs> okay. But um, so, I mean, so you think salvation is as central uh, to the Islamic imagination as it is to the Christian evangelical imagination? The idea of, you know, well, there's also the issue that you don't have to be a Muslim to be saved in the sense of entering paradise, um, that people of the book um, can can be granted paradise even if they don't convert, which I do think is a key difference between Islam and Christianity, where many Orthodox Christians would say that if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
there is no actual way to be saved. So there's there's also that important difference. And you might be familiar, of course, Oamer, with our friend Muhammad Fadl's um, paper, uh, No Salvation Outside of Islam, where he makes the argument that really deep in the Islamic tradition, there is this idea that Christians and Jews can enter paradise uh, without conversion. I don't recognize that. I think that applies to everybody, not just Jews and Christians. But um, wait, wait, sorry. What? What do you mean? Are you really? So that's going to be a different podcast. But if you want me to get into that, um, no, no. Well, but I mean, but you are. But I mean, I, I mean, you are probably familiar with some of these arguments. No, I, I guess I'm familiar that, you... with that there is a lot of complexity, and yes, I, I see where you're going with it, which is that in a sense. Christian kerygma, Christian story of salvation requires believing in one particular person's, one, per one particular historical moment and believing it and so on and so forth, whereas Islamic kerygma, Islamic uh, belief is ultimately universal in the sense that anybody who turns to God in different forms, and people have done that for different eras, different times. So there is that difference. If that's the difference you're, you're, you're pointing at, I'm in agreement with you. It'll require some time to unpack. Uh, but in terms of Muslims wanting salvation or Muslims uh, wanting Christians or non-Christians to convert, um, I only see there is a difference. Um, I mean, the differences are in details. We don't have a missionary movement in history, for example, like you know the way that one thinks of in, in Christianity. Conversions were often historically often organic. Um, there's no Muslim government that is going around converting primarily. Uh, and the jihad is concerned primarily with uh, political influence and then an opportunity for conversion rather than actual forced conversions. We have a fairly good historical, uh, 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 if you will, almost, I would say, consensus now among historians that conversions to Islam did not take place uh, by force, that conversions occurred mostly uh, centuries later, often after the conquest. Uh, all of that, you know, it, it complicates the picture, I agree. But I think as an aspiration that people, uh, that I want to share and I want to guide and I want other people to share the good I have. I don't see that's different from Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And 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 Matt really does agree with you quite strongly on this point and he wasn't joking about what he said earlier when I first told him that I didn't I didn't have an interest in converting him. I think he was actually genuinely first of all surprised but also maybe, you know, slightly hurt because precisely as you both say if I believe Islam is true or most true and the most good out of the available options, and presumably I'd want to share that with my friend Matt and not leave him astray. But just to get back to, um, uh, you know, kind of in the final final part of our conversation, I want to get to some of the practicalities of the caliphate. And one thing I wanted to raise with you, Oimer, is the idea of like a kind of... Um, a sort of like multi-state supranational body that is maybe a kind of Muslim or Islamic European Union. And I, I take that analogy to be interesting and even useful. I will note that 
the Muslim Brotherhood often uses this analogy when people push the Brotherhood and other Islamist movements on how they feel about the caliphate as a way of apologetics. They'll kind of dial it down and be like, hey, hey, Westerners, don't freak out or anything. We're just talking about kind of a regional association, sort of like the European Union. That's kind of what we mean. But before we get to all that, why not have the more modest aim of just having um, democracy within nation states? That seems to me to be a more viable near to medium term aspiration. Dictatorship is the fundamental evil in the Middle East. That's what we have to to push back against. And there can be more of a consensus and more support, and even perhaps one day, God willing, more support from the U.S. government to actually respect the choices of Egyptians, Jordanians, and Tunisians, that if they decide they want to vote for an Islamist party through the democratic process, that you know we should defer to that. That seems more realistic to me and less controversial because democracy is actually a universal good that that the vast majority of humankind can at least relate to. Unlike, say, the caliphate, when you bring that word in, you're going to cause some division, some consternation, and it's going to maybe it's maybe going to make it harder to get to what I think the goal should be, which is less repression in the Middle East. We disagree on two accounts here. One, what the goal is. But two, what democracy and the evaluation of democracy, um, I think that your description of democracy is really hard to, your evaluation of democracy is, is hard to maintain. I appreciate democracy as a tool, but you're thinking of it almost as religion, as an asymptotic goal that even though it fails a million times, it's my faith that one day it's going to solve the problems and it's going to be perfect. To me, that no, asymptotic okay, belief, just let, to- let me finish. So that asymptotic belief is your religion. Like you have to basically believe in democracy as your religion, despite all the failures. And to me, if I'm going to do that, I'd, I'd better have some kind of guarantee, some kind of higher power telling me that this is worth it. Uh, and that's why, to me, that is my faith. And, and democracy is a useful tool that I appreciate, that I want to study, that I want to critique. And people, and it fails in a number of respects. I think there are even material uh, prerequisites for democracy to be meaningful. The number of calories that need to be available for people to every four years waste enormous amount of time, resources, and breath is just not possible historically. In I mean, I study history. It would have been laughably disastrous for people to talk about, you know, one person, one vote or anything of the sort, which is not to say I don't like democracy. It's just I see democracy as possible. And even it may even be on its way out to for something perhaps better. So what? But what would that better thing be? So maybe just to clarify, and I can say a little bit more about my view on democracy in a moment. But so, if democracy is a tool, what exactly is the end state? What is the ultimate end of politics for you? Just to be more clear about what you're getting at. What's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal for for me as a Muslim thinker is a Muslim scholar is what God wants, which is that I want to understand the world 
in a way that makes sense about based on the ultimate truths that I know to be the case. So as a scholar, I'm in search for the truth and the good. Uh, to me, it wouldn't make sense to base my uh, political uh, recommendations on truths that I uh, or to ignore in that uh, in that calculation the truths that I take to be fundamental. Um, whereas when you say what are my goals for politics, given that I am who I am, uh, and and the vast majority of Muslims on this I I might say would agree with me. That's why I see this uh, this is really important uh, 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 proposal that Muslims ought to think about all the different ex human experiences, whether it's democracy or liberalism and, and, and important insights of liberalism, of which I'm, 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 I'm a fan, uh, in, their, uh, in the way that they received Greek and Persian wisdom in the past. They didn't have to get rid of the caliphate and their divine connection, uh, their continuity to the prophet and to each other in order to embrace that uh, wisdom. And in that sense, democracy and liberalism uh, are, uh, in fact, great human experiences, right? But when they become alternative religions, then there are problems. So that's that's why our political goal then is yes, uh, we could agree the repression, enormous amount of repression is, and and not only that, but uh, you know, it's not just repression. It's you could be all penniless and all die together, that sort of, there is an enormous economic um, inequality. There is, uh, I mean, environmental disaster. Uh, most of the goods of the current material bonanza are being enjoyed by a tiny minority. Uh, the vast majority of people who are going to suffer. Uh, and so anyway, well, there Amer are lots of things if, that if go I could, with the goals. If I could just kind of jump to the end, would your imagined caliphate be democratic? Would you would you hope for it to involve citizens voting? So I I would say yes and no because America isn't I mean to what extent is American design of you know uh, a democratic it 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 ha it is a very uh, what's the word it's a very curious no no not not America right? I, I'm saying your then, your caliphate would it no, would I, it involve voting yeah I would say. Yes and no, because I think of that, this as a much more local. So one thing that in my imagination, the caliphate will have to be very sensitive to local communities. So it could be that Tunisia, one part of the federation, if you will, one part of the caliphate uh, is using democracy and Yemen is not because they have a tribal system in which uh, their representation works much better when tribal elders get together and talk about stuff, um, democracy does not guarantee better government, nicer government, good government. It does not, never has guaranteed. No theorist of democracy says that. So if the goods that you're looking for is accountable government, a just government, good government, then I would say uh, a, a Yemen would be different and, and Punjab and Balochistan and it would be different than Yeah, Tunisia. I understand. But that sounds to yeah. me like a very outcomes-oriented approach to democracy, that democracy is good insofar as it produces other good outcomes. And that is not actually, at least you know, from my perspective, at the heart of a democratic idea. Um, and I, I do, I do want to clarify, I am a very big democracy person, 
but I don't see it as anything resembling an alternate religion because, you know, what I talk about, I use the term democratic minimalism, and I would emphasize here the word minimal. I want to actually readjust our expectations about democracy and say it's not about the substantive ends of politics. It's not about getting to some end goal. It's not a panacea. It's not meant to deliver necessarily great economic growth or deliver consensus or lead to other things that we like. Democracy is good because it allows us to select leaders. It allows us to rotate power. It allows us to aggregate preferences from the population. And it regulates conflict for that reason, because there's no way that Egyptians are going to agree on the on what the nature of the good life is. So the only way that they can live together is by agreeing to respect democratic outcomes, to put things to a vote every four or five years, and to have a political settlement that actually doesn't invest so much into politics. Like when we're talking about like that politics should lead to the truth and to this kind of civilizational vision that is putting a lot uh, that's projecting a pretty heavy burden on what is ultimately a procedural mechanism so i just wanted to clarify that um but i think that also gives a lot of room for religiously conservative societies because if you take my minimalist model if the majority of egyptians want to have more islam in politics if they want to have more implementation of sharia then that's something that they can pursue if they have an, enough buy-in from their fellow Egyptians. That requires persuasion. Um, and, you know, but that also leads to, I think, a pretty fundamental issue is you have to, you have, to have buy-in because l- let's say you have this tribal system in Yemen. Well, I mean, what happens to the Yemenis who don't actually... I, I, at some point, there has to be choice and there has to be agency. If I could just say one thing to to Shadi, and I think this is a, a wonderful conversation about democracy that I'd love to have because I am very, uh, I'm a student of democracy. I teach democracy and I certainly do not want to dismiss it. I also uh, think um, that it requires a kind of individualism and a kind of creed about human nature, uh, which not all human societies share. Uh, So there have to be modifications, but I do believe in accountability and I do believe uh, in in sort of local autonomy um, and various forms of life that cannot all be broken down into uh, individual voting, which I do want to preserve. I think my model, one might say perhaps uh, is uh, is less work, less destructive work. Remember, democracy is a lot of destructive work. There has to be destruction in order for this, uh, for people to become the individual, one one person, one vote. Um, and to me, A, that's a lot of destructive work. A lot of the local life that is destroyed as a result might have been better than what you're going to get. Uh, second, I don't have to do this to have accountable and good government. And more importantly, that's not what people believe. But why is accountable and good government? I mean, why is that the be all end all? Why are we orienting ourselves around this idea that 
democracy should or needs to or other systems can better lead us to good governance and accountability. I mean, the, the, the more, you know, if we're talking about what the fitra of, of human beings is, the innate disposition of creation, I think the argument would be a little bit more foundational that democracy allows us to be closer to the way God created us as human beings because he created us as individuals that are account that are accountable to him that there is a day of judgment that is quite individualistic and therefore allowing people to practice their religion and have the room to do that on the individual level is pretty central and democracy does get us closer to that end goal and that's why I come back to this word agency or choice that people should uh, people need to associate in decision making. Otherwise, they're under forces that they have no control over, a kind of despotism. And that actually takes them away from their nature, because if they have other powers, mere men, mere mortals that are telling them how to live or how to be the right, correct Muslim, then their natural spirit is being distorted in some way, especially if it's if there's excess, if there's authoritarianism. That's oftentimes when you elevate men and you make you you know you're allowing them to make decisions about how other people should live in this very interventionist way. You're going to have excess. So I saw you shaking your head there when he was saying agency and choice and freedom and individual. No, I mean, that? That's like a theology of democracy. I don't think that's any kind of theory <laughs> of democracy. But you don't think anti-despotism is inherent I, in the Islamic tradition? I, I, I agree with that. I just don't see that democracy yeah. is the only way to it. It may be a good okay, way. Okay, so I'm going to push pause on the democracy thing. And as, as our guest, I want to give you the last word on something that I, I really did appreciate about your piece. I want to pull us back to that in one thing. And and. And it's on um, the politics of nostalgia. Um, in my own Christian faith, from time to time, Christians look back uh, to pa a past age when Christians were dominant. And with great nostalgia, we want to reestablish that power and sort of just copy and paste what we did in the past again. And often these, these voices are... Uh, rather um, angry and uh, fearful and brittle. Um, and what I read, and I don't hear that at all in your voice today or in this particular um, article, what I hear is um, a, um, a curiosity about the wisdom of the past and a desire to, to honor and imagine um, a way to... Um, to develop that wisdom in the future. Um, and so I'm wondering if you, if you might close us out with perhaps like a word of wisdom to, to Muslim listeners um, who really do value uh, Islamic history and theology and tradition and um, want to imagine a faithful political life. Um, how do they avoid a sort of, romanticization of the past, a sort of brittle nostalgia politics. Um, what, what sort of advice would you give to them as far as 
um, looking, um, drawing resources from the past and, and reimagining them for today? Yeah, it's a great question uh, and a very generous description of, of, uh, of what I do, one that I aspire to, but thank you very much for noticing that. Um, I argue often that uh, it is important um, in, in many ways to think about the caliphate as good government, as ethical, moral government. If we don't think together about good caliphate, you're going to get many bad ones. In other words, there is an ethical, moral impulse that I want to inculcate. That there is a reason why, um, um, you know, the Quran calls to doing good without specifying what that good is 200 times uh, in 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 that uh, in in the Quran. That God is concerned with us doing good, not just with uh, with winning power. And so the caliphate is the site of that imagination of Muslims being able to act as Muslims, Muslims being able to think together as Muslims while doing so, right? And I make that very clear in the article as well as in the Amatix Institute, this is one of our goals, to do so in conversation with other people, in particular with other Muslim, other, other people of faith, um, that this is very much a collective enterprise insofar as we are using resources developed by people all over the world and we are using the very facts of, of globalization technology um, and uh, human experiences whether with democracy or liberalism nation state so it is we ought to recognize our indebtedness to the human experience and as even as we look at uh, its failings, we ought to be grateful to the opportunities that other people's good, other systems' good has created. Uh, so this idea of looking back at the past, I'm very critical of uh, aspects of Muslim political tradition. And my, my book, uh, 2012 book, uh, Politics, Law, and Community in Islamic Thought, is really an internal critique of aspects of Islamic political thought. Um, so what one might call nostalgia, even though that term itself is, is somewhat problematic, uh, a, a student of mine, very proud of, wrote his, his thesis on the question of nostalgia and, and why the kind of nostalgia that is categorized as bad or good. But I will say that there is a uh, romanticization specifically by uh, untruths about our history um, and untruths about other people's history that we let in in order to, uh, I guess, in order to sort of reconcile our desire to have power. I think that as Muslims who are suffering and whose, uh, you know, uh, brethren are, are suffering all over, we ought to think about alternatives, but not in quest for power but in quest for goodness. Um, and that requires um, applying those standards of goodness and demanding more from Islamic tradition as much as we demand from the modern world. That was, that was a great note to end on. And I just want to say thank you so much. I absolutely loved this conversation. I'm so glad that we had you on. 
honestly, like we could probably go on for hours and hours. Um, and uh, so thanks for joining us. And again, you know, if you want to read more about uh, Oemer's work, um, do check out his article, Who Wants the Caliphate? Um, and also read more about the Omatics Institute as well to see more of what he and others are up to. And I'll just say uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks for listening to Zealots at the Gate. If you uh, like what you heard, you can check out this podcast, Host Space, at uh, comment.org. It's an amazing online and in-print journal um, with incredible essays on politics, culture, and faith. And and friends, once again, we'd love to hear from you. And you can connect with us over uh, at Twitter, um, at Shadi Hamid and at Matthew Kamek. And you can write to us. Uh, our email is zealots at comment.org, and you can expect a friendly reply. Um, our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comment Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, with editorial direction by Ann Snyder. I'm Shadi Hamid. Thanks for joining us. And I'm Matthew Kamink. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone.